And we're live for another episode of Bottled Up. Now, this week's episode is one that is very, very special to us. We first heard about this individual, I want to say early last year, when he spoke about his journey of running a marathon in each country in the world. And his name is Nick Butter. Now, we recorded this one earlier this year, and it's actually the first time the three of us have done a conversation together with a guest because we were all so eager to speak to him and hear his incredibly inspirational story. So we take a bit of a different spin on things, and whilst we do go and discuss his journey across the 196 countries, we also touch on the importance of gratitude, resilience, the human connection, and taking a leap of faith, all the ingredients that form the recipe for Nick's success. Now, this one is an hour and 30 minutes, and it is a longer podcast, but Nick has such a way with words, and he's such an eloquent speaker that it's worth every second of your time. So without further ado, I'll hand it over to the chowder to kick us off. Nick Butter. We can actually call him a world record holder. Nick, how are you doing? Uh, yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really excited to be on and uh, I've heard a lot about Bottle Up and what you guys do. So yeah, thank you for, thank you for having me on. Well, it's, it's, we just don't know where to start with your, with your journey because we've obviously been following it for a while. But even if you try to think about like the logistics, 196 marathons, but seeing the world in like 670 odd days and all those flights and passports, like it, it, it's almost like you can't fathom the journey you've gone through, especially now that we're in a pandemic. Like it must feel amazing. But like, let's go back to the start. Let's see how this all began. And um, yeah, like take us to the beginning. Well, the beginning. Well, back in 1989 when I was born, no, I, I should probably start on that. Um, so the beginning of running the world started when I was running out in the Sahara Desert, famous marathon to Saab, uh, grueling seven-day race. Um, and I, I was running it and I wanted to do pretty well. Um, I'd never ran in kind of, you know, mountain highs like sand dunes um and in like 50 degree heat and, and i met this brilliant guy called kevin who was 50 49 50 at the time um and he told me that he had terminal prostate cancer he was one of my tent mates you all have tent mates is about i don't know about 40 50 tents and you all have uh tents of eight and he was one of my tent mates and we got chatting one day and he told me he had terminal prostate cancer and that this was one of his bucket bucket list items that he wanted to tick off um and that was that was all well and good and sad and but yet there was this huge disconnect between what kev was saying to me and the attitude and the portrayal of what he was he was showing which was ultimately this incredibly bubbly smiley happy guy that was told he would be dead in a couple of years and so i was struggling to understand this disconnect as you speak to somebody um and trying not to kind of raise that elephant in the room too much when i spoke to him but but then we did end up getting to talk about it. And, and he said this remarkable phrase, which has kind of encompassed my whole life since, which is, don't wait for a diagnosis. And he said, don't wait for a diagnosis. And what he meant was, don't wait for something in your life to happen, whereby you regret not following your dreams earlier. And I think most people in the world, I would say most people in, in the Western, in the developed world, because I think there is the two sides of it. Um, we have so much, so many freedoms. And I think it's almost like a deer in headlights where we don't know which way to turn. And we end up going, well, the general path is school, university, work, mortgage, death. Um, so let's go down that, or that, that route. And actually what Kevra was saying to me, well, you can live your life however you like, like 
follow your dreams. Um, and so I met a guy. Uh, I wanted to raise some money for prostate cancer. And then I thought, well, let's actually live by his counsel. Let's live by what he was telling me. Um, that all being very well, I, you know, I was at that point running decently and I had some, some sponsors helping me. But I, I didn't really know what I was wanting to do. And then eventually I kind of stumbled upon the my kind of childhood conversation when I was much younger of oh, wouldn't it be nice if um, or wouldn't it be cool to do this and we googled it and, and nobody had run a marathon in every country in the world um, and I was genuinely like that can't be right and I've spent weeks like googling it like there must be somebody that has done it there must be somebody and I was waiting for somebody to come out of the woodwork and go oh I've done that but it never happened and nobody nobody had done it um, and so Amazingly, we set about planning it. Um, and at the beginning, it was just me. Um, and then I sat my parents down and told them what I was doing. Um, and they were like, mm, right, okay. Uh, they know that when I get to that point where I'm telling them what I'm doing, then they know that I'm serious. And I think that was their worry. Um, and there was all their other other pressures, you know, the financial pressures of getting it done, the safety of the likes of, of Syria and Yemen and Afghanistan and all the war zones around the world that you have the stigma and the kind of, the preconceptions of and so there was worry there but so that's that's the, the the recent backstory that was back in 2015 when we met it took me two years to get to the start line um and i left on on january the 6th 2018 and then as you said um yeah 674 days um across the finish line amazingly it's a it's an incredible story of like resilience courage you know the connection that you had with so many people and we'll we'll tap into that um so many different sort of countries and I hope you can remember some of the countries because when we were reading the book there were so many different stories and just being able to capture all that um, in words and in photographs doesn't really tell the story. Um, no. You're but, absolutely right there's, there's so much that's in my head and you know even the book which I'm, I'm proud of the book but I, I wrote three times more than that when, yeah. when it was given to the publishers you know it was 300,000 words and now the book is only 120,000, which is still, you know, you've got the book, it's a big book. Mm. But there's so much stuff, the nuances of the different just experiences that I've had. And I'm sure there's been people along the way that I've really enjoyed speaking with that I've probably forgotten because there's been so much. Um, so, yeah, the, the diversity of, like you say, from what I was filming, what I was taking photos of, the, the conversations I had, um, I feel like it was literally a trip of a lifetime. And it's something that has now sparked this adventurous career and I'm uh, I'm very grateful for it and I remember I remember you mentioning how sort of one of your messages is to value your time and live life with intent and direction and purpose and that that situation with Kevin and when you had that conversation with him at the start um, I can only imagine one you were doing some running before you took that leap but even two you were in a career that you know you weren't getting that much satisfaction out of um, and it was ultimately that conversation with Kevin that sort of um, more or less pushed you and made you realize, I guess, uh, lack yeah. of a better word, that sort of light of that direction. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was, it, was like, it was like having a, you know, I think all of my life, not just, not just Kev. Kev was, like you say, the tipping point. It was like I've been shoved by all of these different people, whether I go and, and, and listen to a lecture about adventure, whether I read an adventure book, whether I've watched a documentary, whether I've met family members or friends of friends or friends of family members of friends that have kind of done stuff. And I'm kind of like, oh, that would be cool, that would be cool. And eventually you get right to the edge. And then that moment, which I didn't realise I was on the edge, and then, and then Kev goes, right, well, I'm dying and life's too precious. And I'm like, wow, okay, 
and then I get goosebumps every time I think about it because it was so powerful. I didn't realize it at the time, um, but then it just stuck and it stuck and it stuck and it went round and round and round. Um, and I think in that environment as well, it's kind of an incubator for, uh, for ideas and thoughts and being able to go beyond what you've experienced because you're in the desert, you're in the middle of this 9 million square miles like sand pit with people you've never met you're struggling and then it, it just bottles up to be this ah, see what I did there I didn't do that on purpose bottles up to be this amazing opportunity and so I I feel I, I feel very grateful for Kev but actually you know I did a, a recent piece for another guy who was writing a book about teachers and the power of teachers and how much they have an influence on people and you know, I was a really shy kid uh, very very like cripplingly shy like no no friends when I was very young and 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 that was, I guess I had to come out of my shell a little bit in order to kind of start living. And then, like you say, I got a, a job in I got a job in banking and it wasn't that I hated the job, actually. It just wasn't me. And I think, really, human beings aren't really supposed to be cooped up in a suit behind a screen. Um, no matter what, you know, whether you're an architect or whether you, whatever it may be, but particularly finance, it's so, um, it's so concentrated on, on, on not the primal, primal side of humanity. And so I think I was kind of uh, needing that extra little bit. But yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful for the people that, you know, brilliant bosses I had that kind of let me have that more running, more running time in order to start training and start to learn to love running. And I think a lot of people can accidentally go from one bad boss, from one bad job, from one bad mortgage, one bad car buying, you know, and it just, you get trapped in these little pockets of negativity without really realizing it. Um, but I think I urge everybody that, any opportunity you have to escape that bubble um, is an opportunity for the better. Um, and the whole concept of saying yes to things more, you know, if you're worked for 17 hours in the day and you're absolutely knackered and you've been behind the screen and somebody goes, oh, do you want to have a pint? And, and, and you, you just go, no, I can't go to bed. That's when you're, you're doing something wrong. <laughs> you know, you actually, you know, interactions with people. So I, I guess coming back to your comment about time and, when I, when I looked into time, because Kev sparked that in me, you know, the amount of time he had left, and I looked into how much time we use in different areas of our life, and you realise we've got this, and I, I think I spoke about it in a, in a few podcasts, but the magic number of 28,747. So that's the amount of days a human being will live for, on average, um, if we were really lucky, because, you know, lots of people don't get there for many reasons. And so if we get there, we've won the lottery in a sense, but what's the point of winning the lottery if we're not doing anything with that money, you know, and that money is time for us. And so um, desperately hoping that the kids I speak to in schools on the speaking tour can kind of have that little spark and go, right, well, actually money isn't the goal. Big cars, big TVs, having like bling and clothing. And it's, that's not the goal. The goal is who you want to become, who you want to be remembered by, what you want to be remembered for. Um, and so I think that's something that there's, there's so many areas to it, but time is so precious um, and none of us really live with intent that we should have. Um, we just assume, I think I do it still now. Every one of us goes to sleep believing we're going to wake up tomorrow and do something else and crack on with our task. And oh yeah, I'll do that tomorrow. Yeah. But that doesn't always happen. Um, and as our life progresses, obviously it gets less likely. Um, and that's when we start to, to feel like we need to do more, but if we can do more early, then, then we're kind of beating the system. Yeah. It's really interesting how the way you spoke about time there, because it actually takes me back to what you read in your book 
um, running the world, where on the first page, um, yeah, not, not to say that I've uh, all I read was the first page, but um, <laughs> you mentioned that when you were running in Croatia, um, you came across a quote that said that life was tedious and brief. Mm-hmm. Um, and it definitely made an impression on me because, you know, especially when you sort of look around and, and see a lot of people living their lives and, yeah. you know, they're sort of deep into their job industry. And, you know, I'm not saying that this actually applies to me or, or any of the three of us, but some people may lose sight of, you know, what they truly want to achieve in their own dreams and aspirations to avoid, you know, maybe perhaps biting the hand that feeds you. So true. It's so true because you're, when you get to that point, when you're making the big decisions, which are going to leave you to lead you down various paths, mm. you've already been in the system, i.e. Yeah. the educational system from what, five years old and you've, you're in it to learn and then you need to learn because, you know, obviously we need education and we need to be able to communicate and we need to be able to learn and empathize and all of the, you know, interact with human beings but then there is a moment in which you do have that opportunity. And I think mm. we're still leaning on our peers and in many cases, our, our adults in our life, whether they're parents or guardians or, or, or strong parental figures, teachers. And if one of them says, oh, you know, that's not a great idea and you value their opinion really highly, then that's kind of wiped off the table. And I know when I have my kids, I'm going to be really conscious of not doing that. I remember a, a careers fair I went to in a, this was probably when I was about 15. And, and I, I wanted at that point to, to go into photography or be a cameraman or something. And I spoke to one of these teachers and he was a, an old boy, pretty miserable. Um, but said with a kind of a humorous step in, in, in his tone, he, he said, you don't want to be a cameraman. You don't want to go into film. There's no, there's no money in it. You'll end up regretting it. And he was saying it in a jokey way, but he said it in a way that was like bitter. And like, it, I wish I hadn't done that. And I thought, oh, maybe I shouldn't do that. And, and he was only joking, and I knew he was, but it still had an impact on me, and I didn't go down that route, you know? And I, and I think we're, we're, all, we're all at the mercy of that system. Like you say, when you, you really have to wake up every morning and go, this world, this massive planet we're on is a playground that we can, we can explore and we can adventure with and learn different languages. There's language, like 7,000 languages in the world. Um, and I couldn't name more than about five, and you know, and that's somebody that's been around the world. And so there's 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 so much opportunity out there. Um, and as soon as you realise it, you just start to get impatient. And once you've got that impatient bug, that's when the the system that you've been in starts to kind of diminish and, and vanish behind you. Yeah, that was beautifully said. And like what you described there, like I've definitely resonated with certain things in my life. For example, like whether it be photography or music or even like sports. But sometimes what I struggle with, and I feel like a lot of people in our generation struggle with, is how do we convert those things into doing it on a daily basis and making a living out of them? And I think about your story, and you talk about this idea of taking a leap of faith where you'd started running, right? But you weren't, in in your words, the best runner in the world. You just loved it, and that's what it was, right? I'm still not. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't really intend to be the best runner in the world. And It's more about following your passions, and the money will come. There's so many people, the amount of times I speak to people at schools and I'll go, oh, what, what do you want to, you know, what are you studying? What are you going to study? And they'll go, oh, I'm going to go and study business. I'm going to go to an international school and I'm going to study business. And I go, oh, right. So can you name like your top three passions? And they'll go, well, I love soccer. I love playing the violin and I love pottery, for example. And I'm like, hang on a minute. Where's the business? Like, is business one of your, and, and it's not. And they assume that that's the right path. And maybe it is. Maybe they are the type of person. And there are the type of people that academia will then really thrive and help you, help you grow. But 
there is the other angle there, which you you can carve your own path and focus on doing what you love. If you do what you love and you are passionate about it, then the rest will come. You you know you have to be very conscious of 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 the fact that you you, know, you can't just mindfully go in. You just keep getting up and going for a run every day and not think about the, you know, how you're going to put food on the table. But there is a way in which you can you can make a balance. Um, and I've taken a, a massive pay cut from finance to my world now. And I tell you what, you couldn't pay me any money in the world to sit behind a desk and move some fictional numbers around on the screen. And I, I said I said this to a few times, many times when I was looking at my various screens in my office, and I I just imagined that all the screens were just black. And because that's effectively what my worth is, you know, <laughs> um, I, I really felt like I, I know you guys are all in finance, but um, I'm saying that on purpose. Um, yeah, like I, uh, I, I really could have just stepped out of the room and like what, what's really happening. So, um, yeah, that's there are you need to follow what you love. Um, and also it's OK to change what you love. You know, it's OK to when you're 15 to love football. And then when you get to 20, you go, actually. I do really love food and I want to be a chef or, you know, you can change that and you can do that all the way through your life. There's so many people that feel like, no, I am an artist and that's going to be me forever. Um, I am a runner now, but before all of my friends that know me from school, they don't know me as Nick the runner. They know me as Nick the skier because I was a skier before I was a runner. And so, and maybe when I'm 40, I'm not going to be the runner anymore. Maybe I'll go into something else. And that's okay, because life's too too brilliant to be so confined to one thing. Absolutely. And that process for uh, discovering that running is what you want to do and running around the world, um, when that started, what was was the journey like from, like, yes, you're good at it, um, or you like it, into I'm going to plan this and I'm going to, quit my job and invest everything in my family and everyone's going to invest everything. What was the timeline there and how did that roll out? That, that was, I suppose that could be summed up with a, one word and that doubt, big time doubt. And I think that's normal. Um, and I was very aware of it, but I had also been very fortunate. And I think this is where you can sometimes have the right tools in your back pocket or not. I was fortunate to have the people around me. Like I said, some good bosses, some good parental figures, some good peers, that would that would say, you know, you just got to go for it. Or maybe I've read a book or seen an article or watched a documentary about people taking that leap of faith. And there's many, many moments where there's books. I was really dyslexic at school. And I was given a book when I was younger of all of the dyslexic people in the world like that have done all of these amazing things like Einstein was dyslexic. And, and then you realise, actually, a lot of people out there that have done a lot of stuff and Einstein's obviously very famous and have done some amazing things but he was wrong sometimes he fails sometimes Richard Branson he, you know he's got an amazing business but he's been bankrupt many times and I was like well what, what's the worst that can happen I think as soon as you realize like I'm going to give this a go and if I fail that's okay like be prepared to fail want not to obviously but be like if I fail then that's cool like I tried it's so much better and, and I tried this with you know I, I went and, and a few years ago way before I met Kev I um I tried to take on the world record for running uh, north to south of Ireland, um, and the record was currently set by a brilliant woman who I actually spoke to the other day, and I'm friends with a lady called Mimi Anderson who's in her fifties, and she and she has the record, and I took that on when I was about a third of her age, and I couldn't do it. I got pneumonia, and I I really struggled. I lost my massive capacity of my lung, and I failed. I did not achieve that goal. Um, I've since gone back and I. I run the length 
Um, but I, at that point, I just thought, actually, that's okay. It's okay that that happened. And it taught me a lot. It taught me really a lot about, about that stuff. And I talk in schools about uh, a topic called like, the, fear of, the fear of failure. And you'll see the kids in schools, if you ask them a question that 99% of them will know, you know, for example, what's the biggest, um, I don't know, biggest animal in the ocean? And everybody will know that it's a blue whale and they'll be studying it. Well, I'll know the, I know that everybody in the room knows the answer, but only three of them will put their hand up. And it's because the rest of the classroom just don't want to get the answer wrong, even though they know the answer. <laughs> um, and that's just a classic example of how sometimes you can just be pushed into these pockets of, oh, I don't want to look stupid. And so I don't care anymore. You know, I don't, I don't, I think there's, a, there's something to be said about just throwing your hands up to the world and going, I'm just a human being on the planet kind of fumbling my way through. Um, and as soon as you realize that's the case, then life starts to get a much more fun. Yeah, wow. So you obviously embraced that that idea of failing and you quit your job and you were at the, the start. Well, what was, what was the feelings at the start, obviously? Like, how do you even comprehend what's going to happen over the next two years? Because obviously it was two years, right, just planning and then was yeah. it two years of running, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah, pretty much. So from meeting Kev to actually finishing, it was like a five-year period, kind of a little bit of time thinking about it. Um, and I'd already, I'd already stopped my job, more or less. Um, yeah, I had stopped my job by then. Um, but it was a moment of, am I actually going to go down this path now? Am I going to put all my eggs in one basket? Um, and I think in the first instance, it was, okay, let's plan it on my own. And I spent about nine months of those two years working on my own. And then I had a, a brilliant chat with a guy called Jeff Smith, who I think I mentioned in the book, who was also out in that tent in the desert. Um, and he is a nonprofit and he's summited Everest. He's a brilliant bloke. And he said, you need someone to help you. You need someone to come on board and help you. And I said, well, I can't really afford, I can't. I, don't, I kind of can't um, warrant this money going on somebody to help me when, A, I like to manage things myself and I think I'll end up just managing both of us and the money won't be worth it. And he said, no, 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 you need somebody to give you a different perspective. You need somebody to half the work with you to bounce ideas off. And I thought, okay, he's telling me to do that and he said it's the best thing in his business. So I said, no, I, I'll trust you. And I did and I hired somebody and uh, that person was a girl called Ali who started to, to plan the trip with me. And amazingly, it worked. And I was like, right, okay, embrace that, that little tick in the box. That's worked. And then we onboarded a few more people. But it, I, that, that journey to the start line, those two years were filled with frustration. I think there's a common misconception about finding, finding funding for these kind of things. And I think everybody knows it's hard. But if you're not in the world, you, you don't realize how hard. You know, if you're, you send 10, and I'm not exaggerating, tens of thousands of emails and then you eventually, if you're very, very lucky, you'll get an answer back and that will be no. <laughs> and if you're very, very lucky, you'll get an answer back and they'll go, well, maybe, maybe you can have a pair of socks. And, 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 that's, you know, and that was 99.9% of the time you didn't get a response. And when you did, it was like, yeah, okay, well, we can send you a T-shirt and send you a pair of socks. And that's all very well and lovely. But when you're trying to put together this trip, it takes a lot of, of funding and effort. And so it was... Goodbye finance, goodbye decent career, hello, putting everything into one basket. I didn't even know how many countries there were in the world at that point. Um, I didn't even know if we could physically do it. And I think that's the, that's the best thing that I learned. It's that if you want to do something, then go for it. There's no reason when you are 10 years old why you can't, no matter what background you are from, relatively, you can't set your hearts on being an astronaut. 
like, there isn't any reason why you can't do that. And I just want every child in the world to realise that they can carve their own path for themselves. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And Nick, when you take like a, a step back from your story and you look at it from like a bigger picture, there's like an overarching theme of, um, you know, plenty of setbacks. And you summed it up perfectly just a moment ago in terms of doubt, even, even from the moment you know, I definitely want you to get into these stories and, you know, you're in some of these countries, you have two passports, one passport somewhere else in the world. Uh, you need to get into one country and you don't have the visa to get into that country. Uh, there's been a move around in flights because there's protests or some gang violence that's happening. That's one type of setback. But you were having some of these setbacks when you were planning. Uh, you had a team of, you know, nearly, I think, 19 people you mentioned. Oh, yeah. uh, you couldn't you couldn't fund some of the people oh, yeah. because of finances and funding. Um and especially when I sort of take that step back and, and think of the link to some of the people that are listening, um, a lot of people, as Mank mentioned, that are transitioning out of university and into full-time work, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of setbacks and a lot of fear of having failure and setback, like you mentioned. But even in those two years, you two years of planning, yeah. you still had that resilience to keep going forward. And yeah. even when we take it a step back and we think of some of the logistics, what were what was that like? Um, even if you want to dive, you know, dive deep into some of the stories in these yeah. countries as well. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, uh, yeah, you're right. And, and what you're saying about you know not having enough money to fund people, um, that's still happening now. Like, and I think I don't really imagine that that's ever going to stop because my goal isn't money anymore. Um, and so it's okay to be able to you know have I've got people working for me now that are volunteers, and I feel. Like I say, look, I'm really sorry, I can't really pay you now. And they're actually like, well, I don't care. You know, it's, it's a whole different world. It's not based around money. So there's that. I, th I think for listeners, remember that money isn't the be all and end all of everything. You know, money buys you stuff. But actually, what I have in my phone book of contacts, of people, of network, of people that are, that is so much more valuable than any money in the world. Um, you know, I can give my mate a call and say, can you help me set up this foundation? And he'll go, yeah, sure. And that happened. And that guy, as a classic example, that was a guy called Nick who I met out in Guatemala. I then ran with him. Uh, he had a marathon series out there called the Impact Marathon. And then he went and run, ran with me in other countries. He then set up my Rwanda marathon for me and ran with me in the rain. Uh, and then months later, he was supposed to come out here skiing. Obviously, COVID put that, that, that to bed. Um, but then I said, well, can you help me do this foundation? He said, yeah, sure. And that was just from a conversation in Guatemala 18 months ago, two years ago. Um, and so that, that relationship is worth more than money, anything, because it's just, it's just such a brilliant way to be. We both help each other out. Um, and I always like to make sure that every relationship I have, whether it's family, friends or loved ones, you have... Uh, you have two ends of the spectrum you have i'm benefiting massively they're benefiting massively and then you have a ma massive bit in the middle where everybody needs to be it's like whether it's the amount of smiles you give somebody whether it's the amount of donuts you give somebody you know it's like everything should be relatively balanced and you're giving you're giving back as much as you're taking um and in my industry now that's really really key because that's the power of, of money it's like trading trading that um so talking about the setbacks should i get into some of the setbacks we had from yeah, definitely. I think some of the listeners are probably eagerly waiting to hear how sort of the planning went. <laughs> yeah, well, so... Where do you begin? Uh, yeah, here we go. Let's, let's where exactly where do we begin? I think one of the biggest setbacks at the beginning was understanding the route, like which way, which way around. I know it seems really obvious. You just pick any, any route and you do it. But 
in order to do it relatively quickly, and I remember I was running, going to every country and running a marathon in every country, but I was doing three countries a week, roughly. Um, and that meant you know, running and getting out and getting somewhere. And if you try and do that just for two weeks, you're probably going to have some form of delay or cancellation, even just with six flights. And when you multiply that up to, what, 455 flights, there's a lot of logistical planning. And so the first problem we had was, do we book all of our flights in one go and then hope they all string together? Or do we build, build enough like wriggle room in the plan if things go wrong? And if that's the case, then are we wasting time and could we have done it quicker? Then you've got obviously the logistics with the passports as well of, well, if we go from this continent to this continent, then I need my visas. And again, the numbers on that I had, I actually ended up filling, I thought I maybe need a couple of passports, two or three passports, but we ended up filling nine passports um, through our through our journey. Um, and of those nine, there was 120 visas. And so there was a lot of logistical juggling between those places. And then you get into the trip itself. Day one, classic example of what stuff, stuff goes wrong. You spend two years planning and I was completely underprepared for marathon number one. Um, I went to Canada, Canada, Toronto, for country number one. We decided our route was going to be, as you look at a map, just kind of left to right. There was no simple way of doing it. Um, and so we, we went North America, South America, Africa, Europe, Asia, Oceania, basically. Um, and got to Canada, and it was much, much colder than I was anticipating. It was minus 25 degrees C. I didn't have half as much of the clothing I needed. Um, and again, I, I packed because I thought, well, it's going to be about minus 10. That's fine. I can probably just put another jacket on top. But minus 25, that's, that's bitterly, bitterly cold. You do not want to be out without the right gear. And so I had to borrow clothing from people that... Um, and, you know, that was day one. And yeah, that's not a big problem, just borrowing clothing from various reporters that came to, came to take photos of me or people <laughs> running with me. But then actually looking back, being in that position on day one really sums up the whole journey of how much we were underprepared. And I thought I'd thought of everything and I put it in the book. And I don't remember how I put it in there, but you think two years of planning and you think I've got, you know, I had this, what we call the war room of, of all of these post-its, all of these notes of what could go wrong and the logistics and massive, massive wall. Like this map behind me when we're not in our place now, but the, I had this huge, huge map, much bigger of the world and post-its all over it. And on day one, there was a plane crash flying into Toronto. There was the temperature going wrong. I then like, had some tears and cried on day one because I was scared of what was to come. And like that was day one of 674 days. <laughs> um, and so you add, add that up and then lots more goes wrong. So um, what else happened after that? Uh, some of the big things that went wrong along the way. Go on. You're forgetting your broken ankle that you just had a couple of months before you started in am, Canada as well. I am forgetting that, yeah. <laughs> I completely forget that. Yeah, so, um, yeah, which, which broken ankle was that? No, my, my broken ankle, that was, well, I think that was a September. Was it September before I left, I think? You probably remember more than me. Uh, and, I, and I was sent out to, to do some filming, um, for doing some reviews for some trails and things got cancelled because of a, a hurricane and I ended up going somewhere else. Um, and when I was there, I was uh, drunk, skipping over a, a, a skipping rope and I, I fell over and broke my ankle on a Thailand beach <laughs> and I just felt like a right idiot. I'd done so much planning and then I was so foolish to be 
be falling over and, and breaking my breaking my ankle. And then and then after that, uh, I just didn't do much running because I needed to repair it. I also got so sidetracked with all of the planning um, that running was just kind of a second thought. And by that point, I'd already done 400 odd marathons, and so I knew I could do the distance. But you know, running in Toronto, I completely and utterly didn't appreciate how little miles I had done. And I think I put it in the book that halfway through that run, I realized that um, I hadn't run more than about a half marathon for like four or five months before. Um, and I was just about to do nearly 200 marathons. Um, and I just thought this is really foolish. We put all our eggs in one basket. And it's like almost you arranging this massive banquet for like thousands of people and then you forget to buy an oven. Like, you know, it's like the most like obvious thing. And I, I, uh, yeah, I, I substantially forgot what I was, what I was supposed to be doing. Um, and then obviously you get into the journey and then there were the, the other stories about being mugged, um, being hit by a car, um, having some, having a broken elbow, some broken ribs, um, had a little minor heart attack in there as well, just to throw that in. Um, and more than anything, lots and lots of food poisoning, um, Anybody that has experienced any form of food poisoning like illness will know that the last thing you want to do is go and <laughs> run for four hours, uh, especially in, uh, in, in 40 odd degree heat um, in most of the countries I was in at the time. And so it became very debilitating. But it was the whole, you know, I was very aware. And I think this is something that people maybe overlook. I was very aware going into this mission that it is a mission. It is hard work. It is really, it's not going to be easy. That's the whole point. If I, if I, you know, if I, if I went into that trip thinking that it was going to be easy, then I wouldn't have done it because that's the whole point of the journey. Um, and so I feel, I feel like I was prepared in the back of my mind for those two years building up to, we're going to have a lot of setbacks. I just didn't realize how many there would be, you know, my, my dad, bless him, who was responsible for, for booking, well, he was pushed upon him rather than um, given the job, uh, rather than volunteering the job. And, and he had lots of, um, lots of flights to book for me he was responsible for getting me from a to b to c to d to e etc and the amount of times he had to call me at crazy o'clock in the morning and i knew every time that phone rang and it said dad mobile or dad home i would pick up that phone and i would know he would tell me i'd either have to get to the plane now or we would miss like the the, the trip not happening um and as we got close to the, to the end of the journey those conversations got more fraught there was more shouting and more frustration and more more fear in both of our voices of well we can't not have that visa if we don't get that visa then if we don't have that passport at that right time we need to make sure we get a courier service and don't send the passport using that company you have to send the passport using this company and it just got so convoluted and complicated um because of the pressure everybody assumed that the closer i got to the end of the trip it was going to get easier um, because I was near the finish it just got so much more stressful because we were so adamant that we we could not fail now um, unfortunately by pure miracle those that were closest to the journey will tell you us achieving that finish line in Athens on November the 10th was the biggest miracle I've ever experienced in my life it was there were so many reasons why we shouldn't have shouldn't have got there um, and amazingly we did yeah, it's funny you mentioned those setbacks, actually, because you actually do summarize all your setbacks in, in your book. And I actually want to maybe just name a few that really stuck out to me. Um, okay. Yeah, so, so, so you, 101 marathons running without food, 34 marathons without, with food poisoning. You got hit by a car once. Uh, there was three marathons where you had a kidney infection, two muggings and attacks, 
35 no meal days, one horrendous tooth infection, a dog bite. And on top of all that, you've also mentioned that you had a minor heart attack. Now, um, now if I, when I sort of digest that and sort of take a step back, I, I kind of think you're crazy. <laughs> as a, as a lot of people might think that. But, um, but then I sort of look at the next page where you mentioned that you sort of ran with nine presidents and then you came and you ran with and became friends with um, 5,000 plus run buddies. And, and I feel like if you hadn't gotten over those and pushed through those setbacks, you wouldn't be... You wouldn't have you wouldn't have achieved what you've achieved, and you wouldn't have experienced what you'd experienced. Um, and it's that whole notion that I think Will Smith Will Smith actually speaks about this as well about the idea of all the good things in life are on the other side of of fears and setbacks. And you know, he, he sort of takes the example of you know jumping out of a plane, and the whole time you're, you're going up into the plane, you're nervous and scared, and then once you take that leap of faith, it's just you know absolute bliss. I think yeah, you're right. So the, the, a good example with your, your Will Smith example of getting you know you 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 train to do a skydive, you go up in the plane, and then you have that moment where you jump out. If you could just flick a switch and feel that feel that feeling of jumping out of a plane without having all of that build up, it wouldn't be the same. It wouldn't be as good. It wouldn't be as powerful. And so having all of those setbacks. Men, it's almost like the uphills and the downhills. It's having all of those ups to get up and just to struggle and get over, like you're literally climbing over obstacles because you're having to put so much energy into that. The downs, the, the moments where you're sliding down or when you're falling out of that plane, they are so much more profound because of the energy and effort you have put in. So if I was just given a couple of million quid and if we had no setbacks and if I had an entourage of supporting me and had all of medics with me, the journey I would have experienced would have been nowhere near as powerful and as interesting and as enriching. Um, so I think there is something to be said about taking risks because you have the opportunity to gain far more than if you don't. Um, it's the same concept of, okay, well, should I take a gap year? Should I go straight to university? Should I, oh, what if this, what if that? Most of the time, if you take the, the harder approach or the, the most risky approach, your rewards are going to be greater, um, you know, exponentially greater, not just a one-for-one one ratio. You're going to be you're going to be benefiting far more. And so I've learned that, and I didn't know that at school. I didn't I didn't realize that. You know, my my fears of oh, I don't want to enter the egg and spoon race and or the, the sack race at school on sports day because what if I fall over or what if I and I was actually the other side of it is what if I have a load of fun? Like what if I win? What if you know? There's so many other opportunities to if you take risks. Um, and I think it's to be said in nine to five jobs, you know, you know, if you go into a job with, uh, let's say $30,000 salary, um, and you know that that's your salary, that's, that's your salary. Um, if you go into a job without any certainty of money, then you know that maybe you get nothing, but maybe you get 60,000, maybe you get a hundred thousand, maybe you discover that money doesn't matter and you'd rather have some friends, you know? There's so many There's so many other opportunities when you take risks. I think if you look at it in a very black and white way, risks are scary. Like, that's, that, you know, that's not safe, that's not fine. I, I, yeah. And parents as well, adults that are maybe young, young parents that have got kids, it's do we take our child to the playground or do we save up a little bit and do we maybe not buy them as many Christmas presents or do we actually then go and run you know, take them out hiking in the Himalayas or something, actually, they're going to gain so much more from a bigger experience because of everything else around them. And, I, and something in the book, um, 
this couple, this sorry, this father-daughter combo I met in in one of the Pacific Islands called Kiribati, um, who we're still friends with now. The father um, Fraser and the daughter Francesca. He had taken his um, his daughter out of school and basically travelled with her around the world with his job, and she was one of the most and still is one of the most worldly, adult, mature, respectful, brilliantly-minded people I have ever known because she sees the world through eyes of diversity and just difference. And if you don't open yourself up to that, then you don't take the risk of going, well, they may risk never having friends, they may risk you may not be able to acclimatise to life without friends in schools or may not be able to speak. She can speak like five different languages and she's, you know, <laughs> it's just so many more opportunities. So um, my attitude to risk has completely changed. And obviously in the finance perspective, then you also have that kind of ingrained into you somewhat. Um, and now I'm on the other side and I'd much rather go, yeah, let's, yeah, let's, let's, take, a little bit, let's take a little bit more of a risk. Mm. Were there any points or moments in your trip where you thought, you know, hey, you know, what I'm doing right now is so worth all of those risks that you took? Yes, lots. Um, many, many, many. Some of them weren't some of them weren't as big as you expect. You know, there was the moments where I'm, you know, dangling my legs over the, the on a lip of a volcano in Nicaragua with the lava bubbling up beneath me and the, the pitch black of night and there's this just peace. It's beautiful. There's the big moments and then there's the little moments. Like I used to find real solace and peace in being on a plane. And I really learned that that time on a plane was so special. And, I, and the more plane journeys I took, the more grateful I was to be able to, especially now in a COVID world where we're, nobody's doing that. Um, at that time, I was just so, so happy that I'd taken those decisions because I was, I was loving, I was, it was my reflective moment. Um, the, the feeling of euphoria and relief and elation of finishing I actually think that was brilliant, but not as brilliant as all of the moments I had up until that point. You know, Haiti, for example, country number four, my first experience of poverty running. And I was looking at my watch every couple of meters because I was so tired and so exhausted. But finishing that run and meeting, I then met a bunch of Canadian um, uh, missioners who were working on an orphanage there Mm. and speaking with them after the exhaustion and then the completion of a marathon through this poverty-stricken city, um, and then going and visiting this orphanage where the kids have been given hope again, you just see it so much more profound than you can get in like the normal walks of life. And so I think, and I sum sum this up in pretty much every conversation I have with people, but people were at the central focus of everything I did. Mm. So whenever people are in my life that I think are either struggling to make a decision or unhappy in some way, or maybe need a bit of guidance my answer is always have the right people around you Mm, Um, because I had that with running the world and I had that with the people I met and it was always the most extreme positive emotions I had which were which were with people Uh, yeah there's a there's an interesting theme around uh connection I think we've touched on it a couple of times throughout um you know you've got plenty of different themes that do follow you but one is the people that you do come across and um Time and time again, you're sort of surprised by the generosity of different people that that do offer. I think there was even that little situation in Haiti, Haiti, or uh, one of those countries. I think uh, in your first chapter around one of the girls giving you eight pounds because um, you know she only had a little bit, but she she saw the cause that you were running for. Yeah, yeah in Haiti, uh, the cause that you were running for. Um, you know that that value for you. You know, she believed in what yeah. you were doing. Um, 
and I, I was I was really really that that hit me that hit me like square in the face when that happened because she really didn't have a lot of money and she was literally traveling from Haiti to the other half of the island which is Dominican Republic to go and study architecture she wanted to be an architect and this was like I was like you want to be an architect and she was coming from Haiti with nothing and she was really going for it she was a highly educated a really really brilliant person and I just chatted to her there's nobody else on the bus that I could speak to this was my journey by the way from Haiti into the Dominican Republic on a bus um and I chatted to her and I explained what we were doing and my journey and everything like that and she said oh yeah well, here's, here's the money that you know give this to the charity and here's some money to pay for your taxi when you get off the bus to go to your hotel and this was a person that doesn't stay in hotels she has to rely on friends of friends to, to help her out she has to find the money to for her education she has to send money she's working to send money back home to her family and she's giving me a random stranger what is the equivalent of a decent amount of money it would be i would say three or four hundred dollars us dollar, uh, australian dollars just to a random person when you come from very very little and she said no no, no this you're what you're doing is bigger than is bigger than me it's bigger than my cause and that's just so like you know, if, if you had, if you walked past a homeless person on the street and and they didn't say anything to you, but but they wanted to try and not be homeless anymore, you wouldn't just go and give them three hundred dollars. I wouldn't give them three hundred dollars, and and that's I'm coming from somebody I feel like I should and I would do that, and yet I know I wouldn't because I don't I don't that just one conversation and this person did that for me, and that happened over and over again. Um, with whether it was people that were giving up their time to help me or whether it was people that were you know, sending packages back home for me or sorting out a plane trip for me or letting me hotspot off their phone or, you know, little stuff like that that just was so, so amazing. Um, you you go to show, you open yourself up to the world and the world will, will, will pay you. Mm, wow. Yeah, it's incredible how, you know, the power of, you know, the human connection that you described there can, can sort of just drive you forward. And um, you also mentioned there that, you know, Haiti being a, a profound moment of resilience and perspective. Um You've also mentioned in, in other podcasts and, and in, you've also mentioned this in your book actually as well, um, the effect that Sierra Leone um, had on you. Uh, did, did you. Did you experience those those same emotions when you ran there as well? Oh, God, there's so many like that. Yeah, Sierra Leone is a brilliant example. So Sierra Leone, um, I went there. So one of the security firms that was helping me um, helping me with the journey, they put me in touch with a company and I got chatting with a guy there also called Nick, actually. Oh, um, really? <laughs> different Nick, because it's the third Nick of the, oh, of the podcast. And he, um, and he had a, a daughter called Jen. And Jen became my friend. And she was working as a doctor in the hospital in Freetown, in a children's hospital in Freetown called, in, in Sierra Leone. Um, and she said, oh, yeah, come and stay with us. And for four or five days, I extended for a couple of days so she could show me some of the other outskirts of Freetown and McKenney and and she then showed me around the hospital in Sierra Leone. And the experience I had in Sierra Leone was, how do I describe it? It was so powerful and sad that it was actually, I came away with a positive feeling of it because I could do something. I could, I could actually help in some way. So this was a situation where so many, there's, there's something like 150 doctors in the whole of Sierra Leone which is like the equivalent of one borough of London. <laughs> it's, just, it's just ridiculous, like tiny, tiny amount of doctors in the whole country. And Jen was this volunteer doctor seeing kids come in. And most of the time, I think it was eight out of 10 children that came into a hospital that were under five would die. 
and they would die because they could they weren't sure what was wrong with them was it malaria was it lack of food um and and there was a one woman in particular that we spoke to and interviewed who had two children in hospital um, we were filming for the documentary and i wanted just to understand the lives of people in Sierra Leone and, and how they were struggling um, and this woman had two children in hospital she couldn't afford to couldn't afford to work out what was wrong with them uh, and and we had a conversation it was very kind of full of tears and sadness and then she said actually I actually had nine children but seven of them have already died and she was she had her last two remaining children in hospital, couldn't, um, couldn't afford to pay for working out what was wrong with them, couldn't afford to educate them. And then all of a sudden, I said, well, how much would it cost to get her medication? How much would it cost to send them to school? How much would it cost to feed them? And that's when I put something out on social media to say, for the equivalent of 90 pounds, we could feed both of these kids, we could get their medication, we could make them healthy, we could educate them, we could feed them for a year for 90 pounds for both kids. And it was just the most real, big realization that, right, we, we've got to do something. We've got to, not just for this one person, but for, for a bigger picture. Um, and I hadn't expected when I left for my running around the world mission <laughs> to be sat there. And then that was when we launched the, the 196 Foundation when we, when we wanted to do, do some big projects to help people. So that was very profound. But on, in all honesty, there's been so many like that around the world in different countries and very similar stories of you know, visiting cancer rehabilitation centres, um, visiting youth clubs, visiting um, disabled athletes. There was so much. And I just felt many times that I, I did start to feel a little bit unworthy, really, because I was, I was having given so much. It was like just, I don't know, winning the winning the endorphin lottery every week like you just you make these people and I was like what I've won again like this is incredible um and it's yeah moments that everybody should experience once in their life I, I felt like I just had all the time so um and that was all again coming back to risk that was all because we took a risk oh that, like the way you describe that it's so compelling and it's one thing to hear about it but for you to be there it, it would be like probably a turning point yeah. for you I imagine Sarah Leone because I remember reading about it in your book and I, I think at that point you were in tears right like when you got there yeah oh yeah I, 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 we cried all of us actually there were because it was a group of us that were running most of us cried it, during the run like you know and I had the similar situation in Panama when I went and visited the the people uh, the, the chemo ward um I, I just it's ingrained in my mind how powerful that was and we came out and we were in tears and it, we were in tears not just for sadness but for the realization that the the impatient nature of we've got to do something um and so you know you see you say it must be amazing to have witnessed it and actually most of the people listening to this podcast will be able to have the opportunity to go right to that hospital that i was in and speak to those people you book a plane ticket you go there and you experience it and you have your life changed um so i you know that, that's yeah there's, there's opportunities out there for everybody to go and see that kind of stuff. Yeah, and moments like that, they would obviously be in your in your memories forever. Was it those sort of things that got you through the difficult moments where, for example, you had food poisoning and you still had a marathon to run or you had a heart, you thought you had a heart attack, right, and you still had to keep running like over the next few days? Did those Im yeah. images come back in your mind and power you through that? Or what, what got you through? Cause I, yeah, I yeah, definitely some of those those clear images, and I still remember the the lady's face who who lost all those children, and, and obviously having conversations with Kevin. I describe it in the book, and I can remember it vividly: the really old, worn, leather green chairs in the chemo ward in Panama, 
um, and the bell they used to ring when when somebody's finished their chemo session and stuff. And so all of those thoughts obviously come flooding back. But the overarching feeling, which is so incredibly powerful, is I am choosing to put my body through this and to run around the world. Most people, and it is most people in the world, don't have the choice to choose to do something like that. They only have the need to get up and find water and shelter and feed their children. And, and often it's not feed their children, it's often feed their siblings because they don't have parents around anymore. You know, so much of the world, we just assume that it's, it's, it, it works on the same system as us in the, in the Western developed world. It's not the case. Um, so much of the world is deprived. So much of the world is in need. And yet there was a strong correlation with all of those people that I met that were just so giving and so happy. There was almost a, a, a direct strong correlation between people that ha didn't have stuff and people that were happy. <laughs> the amount of smiles I had and elation I experienced from kids running after me and whether it's, it was Sierra Leone or, or most of the Central African countries of kids just running after me, smiling with their big white teeth. And they would just be like, they're going, oh, white boy, white boy, white boy. And it was just like, and obviously not in a racist way, it was just a, wow, there's, some, there's guys here running. Can we go and run with him? And it was the most fantastic, because obviously they don't experience racism because there isn't any, there isn't any racism. Um, and so me being white, I was the, definitely the white sheep. Um, and they would be able to, to kind of, you know, shout at me and yell at me in the most perfect way. And that was actually quite a profound moment for me because I was, you know, I was like, hang on a minute. You're not, allowed, you're not allowed to call me white boy. And actually I was like, no, 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 they are, because that's fine. <laughs> because they're not, it's not bad. They're not doing it in a bad way. It's not discovered yet. And that's just a prime example of how different the world is. And I just wish everybody could have a little snippet, a tiny little snippet of, of all those little bits that I've seen that, um, you know, the, the world would be far less aggressive and at war with, with one another if they could, could see the, the, the diversity on the planet. Yeah, it seems like this really authentic sense of gratitude that you've developed. I mean, sometimes I feel like we're told to be grateful for things, but you have mm. to really go out there and experience it. And time and time after again, I hear about this correlation between people who don't have anything, but they are so blessed. But I, I personally think I need to go out there when I get the chance to and go into Africa and actually experience that myself. Do you think... Um, Yes, there was a, like definitely. you would have heard it before as well, I'm sure before you left, but when you actually got there, you're like, yeah. it's different. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's so many people that used to, would say to me, oh, this trip will change your life, this trip will change your life. And what they were referring to is like realizing that the world is so different and diverse and that we are the most lucky species that has ever roamed the universe. And I was like, yeah, 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 my life. And I didn't really get it. I kind of thought, yeah, OK, let's just see what happens. And when you experience that kind of stuff and, you know, kids come up to you and they don't ask for money. They just say, can I have some food? Or maybe they come up to you and say, can I have your empathy plastic bottle? You know, because they just want something to be able to go 10 miles down the road and pick up some water in this, with their bottle and use it and drink it. And that's gold dust then. And so I, I had, it was a, it was a very, very, very profound experience. And I would urge everybody that has the opportunity, if you're wondering, should I or shouldn't I go and spend a week, a month, a year, is a no-brainer. It will transform the rest of your life. And hopefully that will then, what you will then do, which again, it was out of my sight when I did it, was 
having conversations like this, I didn't realize that over a year and a half after finishing, I would be still having conversations and being able to share that message. And so you have the option, everybody has the opportunity to go out and go, right, I'm going to go and spend a month in Kenya or a month wherever. And it doesn't even have to be that far afield. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of brilliance that goes on much closer to home and lots of need closer to home. So, um, yeah, there's a whole array of, of opportunities. Um, and I, yeah, you say gratitude, and I am incredibly, incredibly grateful, but I didn't realize that was going to be the biggest feeling I had from it. Um, but I just feel so grateful to be to experience all of it. Mm. And you, you also mentioned how like a lot of, a lot of hate and negativity in the world comes from misunderstanding. And, and it sort yeah. of goes back to your point about uh, these black screen, black monitors, uh, that being a reflection of your life. Also, uh, working full-time behind a desk and that not sort of sinking in into some of our more primitive behaviours. How? Yeah, and, and also what we, what we see from yeah. the media. Because there's, because there's so much, you know, the media by its definition almost is a, is a machine for negativity because if it's bad stuff going on in the world, then for some reason human beings have gone, yeah, let's just shout about that. Which I suppose it comes back to you know, like the primal days of when we were starting to grow crops and, and human beings were trying to evolve in that way. And it was, oh, no, there's loads of floods coming. Let's tell everybody about it. And media has, has kind of has kind of, kind of of snowballed and that's become this world of, if you turn on the news, no matter what day it is, there's always going to be at least one, if not all of the news bulletins will be about something that's going wrong. Um, and what my trip was is the exact opposite. You know, it wasn't when I was in Syria, I wasn't thinking about, the war in Syria or how horrendous the, the, the experiences were there. I was just elated to be running with this brilliant, I ran with the under-19s female football team in Damascus in the centre of the stadium, stayed in a beautiful place in the old town. Um, and war was literally on our doorstep, a million miles away from what I was experiencing. And that was because I experienced it firsthand. And your, your point, that again, I spoke about a few times in other conversations about um, the misunderstanding in the world and the aggression and the negativity comes from a lot of people not being exposed and understanding other cultures. And I suppose a microcosm of that is uh, Papua New Guinea, PNG, where they have the most diverse language range in the entire world, something like 4,000 languages or something within Papua New Guinea. And the reason there is so much killing of one another is because the tribes can't communicate with each other. Um, and so as soon as we learn to communicate with each other better, um, and it's the same with religion, as soon as religions start to integrate themselves with other religions and start to empathize and understand them, then we'll hopefully slowly come out the other side of it. And maybe mankind will realize that it's okay to have those, those different beliefs and stuff. But um, I was, yeah, I was amazed at, the, at how religion rules the world in, in, in so many ways. And if you, don't, if you don't open yourself up to that, I think religion should be spoken about far more in schools. Not as a preaching, you should be a religious person, but as a, this is how religion works. <laughs> and religion is powerful. You don't have to be involved if you don't want to be. But I tell you what, <laughs> most of the world is. So at least read the yeah. book, you know. <laughs> there's, a, there's a very sort of interesting project, you might have heard of it, called the Resilience Project. Um, by a guy called Hugh Van Kienberg or Sienberg. Uh, all three of us have read it. It's a very short read. Uh, you can also have it on Audible and stuff like that. But the point I'm trying to get at is he sort of shares this message around GEM, um, gratitude, empathy, and mindfulness. And that's what the project is about. Um, and it sort of reminds me of a point uh, around empathy 
because he talks about empathy breeding kindness and kindness at the end of the day is very much free everyone has the choice to be kind and part of it mm. is sort of the diet or yeah. information that comes into your into your mind but also another part of it is the experiences that you have and bringing that and and I guess the link I'm trying to make here is in in the people that you meet and the connections that you make uh, I can only sort of assume that you know there's a there's a stronger sense of empathy um, that you've developed through your trip and that kindness you're able to offer to other people how has that been because Again, the world is a very beautiful place as it is, but without people, it's not going to be fun. No, exactly. People are fundamental to everything that that we do. You take the people out, um, and you you lose so much of the planet Earth is is beautiful. You take every planet, every person away, and the planet Earth is still going to be going to be stunning and beautiful. But the people in it, we are so as one now. Earth and human beings operate so wonderfully together and I I do often find that people that are in my old life that are working behind a screen a lot of the time they forget that that they have human beings right next to them sat right next to them that go through the same emotional uh, kind of dialogue and emotional journey as them um, and so much war whether it's you know arguing with your partner or whether it's nation on nation war um you it comes from not understanding one another's moods not understanding uh yeah you touch on it empathy like you know that gem project sounds exactly right exactly what it's all about just trying to understand where people are coming from and classic example we were recently around through ran through italy you've probably seen that on social media and um and we were broken into um and my you know we were my partner nikki was 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 kind of we were both angry at them for breaking in but i think from running around the world my immediate response was they must be so desperate because there's no tourists anymore like and i mean obviously i'm not advocating people to break into people's vans especially not ours <laughs> but it was almost like you're, you're, you don't have an option well you do have options but you this is this is your path that you've taken and now so many things have been taken away from you i.e covid there's no tourists anymore and so we're the only ones here and then we kind of scuppered their plans and they left they left with not much and so i felt like hmm, i feel sorry for them and i wouldn't have felt like that had i not run around the world and the same same thing happened we were coming back from france over the over the tunnel into the uk it was last year um, literally a couple of months after finishing the trip, actually, and we were living in the van, um, and we 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 were at the tunnel, and amazingly, we noticed that somebody had stashed themselves under our bed in the van. Um, don't think I've said this on a podcast before. So it's and somebody had stashed themselves at the at the tunnel um, under our van and under our under our bed to try and get into get into the UK. And this was a kid that must have been no older than 18, maybe not even 16 years old. And he had obviously come from, I would assume, very far into Europe and just wanted to make this last little journey using our van as a little smuggling hatch yeah. into the UK. <laughs> and we obviously, we got, got to him and we shouted at him and we said, get out, get out, get out. And he got out and he just walked away. And the look on his face was utter disappointment it wasn't anger it was no ang no aggression whatsoever it was this was my last attempt to get there and uh, this was my last little journey and I've made it I've made my mission and what I was doing by saying get out was the right thing obviously 
but we were also, I just felt terrible because I'd stopped, I'd, I'd stopped his dreams in his tracks where everybody else around the world had just been helping me. And I had this crisis of like conscience of, well, can we do something for him? Like, is there something else we can do? Um, and obviously we can't just stash somebody and take them in because it's illegal and not moral, but is there another way of doing it? And, and I all of a sudden felt, you know, rather than just anger and aggression and, and frustration with him, it was just this like sadness that, this guy was so desperate and he was nearly there and I wouldn't have I wouldn't have felt like that you know if that was four years ago three years ago I would not have felt like that at all I would have just been angry and have showered at him and you know and that would have been that and I wouldn't have thought about it from his perspective so the world can give you give you much more it reminds it reminds me of your story in Yemen when you were entering and you got uh, weren't you entering and you were pretty much used as a mule? That's exactly what happened, yes. We were going, um, that was one of the most scary moments in my life. We were going in a, in a car from, I wasn't, was I going from, no, it wasn't Beirut, was it? It was uh, from, what was the neighbouring, Oman. I was going from Oman into Yemen in the middle of the night, two o'clock in the morning, and this driver we'd hired a long time ago, didn't speak a lot of English, and he... He said he'd take me into the country. Long story short, because as you've read the book, there's lots of stories around it, but little did I know that he was smuggling some counterfeit goods and drugs into the country uh, and using me as a distraction, as a mule, basically. And um, when he hid stuff under my seat, and it, that was scary. But it was also, it was more on the side of, it was the done thing. You know, it was almost like, well, if you're going to Yemen, then obviously you have to take the drugs in. <laughs> it was like, it wasn't the same situation as him being super desperate. He was just, uh, this is what they were doing. This is his living. And obviously we, we, got, we got caught. I say we, I wasn't an accomplice. He got caught. And, uh, and, we, uh, and we then had to obviously give everything over to, to, the, um, to the guards there. And it was a very, very scary experience because I was in a country where the US, the, the US, the UK government has no responsibility Incoming to get me whatsoever, um, and therefore they could have just locked me up and thrown away the key. Yeah, um, but fortunately that didn't happen. So I've learned my learned my lesson. Don't get into a car with lots of boxes of unknown goods. <laughs> well, how did you get out of that? We well, we we had to give them all of the counterfeit stuff and all of the drugs. Oh, okay. um, I couldn't believe it. Two o'clock in the morning on the Yemeni border, I was hauling drugs out of a car and giving them to guards with AKs and massive dogs. I think if it had been a, a UK kind of France border, I think it would have been right, you're banned now forever. But being a man in Yemen, I think it was a little bit more flexible and uh, they just allowed us to, uh, allowed us to carry on. Um, but it was, that could have derailed the whole plan, let alone put me in prison. So. I, I guess like uh, one, one of the questions I had, there's so many moments where you've had so many people surrounded around you with AK-47s. You've got sort of canines and all this sort of stuff pardon my language but wouldn't you shit yourself in in some of these situations that do come how sort of the the nick to inner nick sort of conversation or dialogue that was happening how did you go about processing mm. some of these situations sort of in the moment because again I, I can do the whole whole link back to you know there's moments where we go into fight or flight mode did you feel did you feel that yeah. when you're in these sort of situations as well in um and maybe this, I haven't thought about it in much detail before, but I think maybe this comes back to when I was really shy as a kid. I kind of felt like, and it's the same with if, I don't know, if a bear is trying to attack you or something, maybe, it's, maybe that's the wrong example, but I just kind of thought like, well, let's just be quiet and kind of like pretend I'm asleep and like things will go away. 
Um, and I kind of re regressed into myself somewhat in that way and tried to just be that. But in terms of the fight or flight, the biggest flight or fight moment I had was when I was being mugged in Nigeria. And, and that was at, at gunpoint and a knife point. And I absolutely had the flight instinct. That was the biggest instinct I've ever experienced in my life of just wanting to run as far as I could. And obviously I was in the one place where it was impossible to run. And there was, you know, there was, it was the maze of, of Lagos Market where you just, you, you, you would, would literally fall over your own feet with this mud and rubble and goats all over the place and chickens and people literally everywhere. It's absolute maze of people and rubble and belongings and cars and buildings. And so there was no way I could even move, let alone run away. And eventually I did manage to weave out once I was told and there was a kind of a, 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 a an opening. Um, but that, that flight, that flight sense is quite profound because I really, I was literally like a, a rabbit, like, oh, where do I go? Where do I go? And, and I couldn't, I couldn't go anywhere. And that's when I kind of just crouched in the ball and I was kicked and we eventually, we eventually got out of that. Okay. But, um, yeah, I'm definitely not a fighter. I've discovered that definitely would rather just, uh, run away or, or try and be quiet. I think it's probably a good thing. You probably, you probably dodged a lot of trouble as well that way as well. This is a wide smile. Just a wide, you would have dodged a lot of trouble that way as well. Just, just a wide smile and sort of nod of the head. I, I tell you, yeah, you're right. I tell you what I'm not very good at, though, is frustrations of airports. Yeah. <laughs> of being, that's in the book as well, of being the amount of times I've tried to take my bags through various different airport yeah. scanners. And I'll have the same thing in my bag every time for two years. And the amount of times I get asked to take a different item out of my bag because it's not allowed to go through the scanner. I'm like, well, it was fine two weeks ago when I passed through here. So that I'm not very good at. I do, I do lose my <laughs> shit, actually. When it's like, well, this is ridiculous. Yeah. Or when there's somebody in front of me that doesn't realise that toothpaste is a liquid and no, you can't put that in your... Yeah, that was, that's ultimate frustration. Did you, did you have a, a favourite country? I know you mentioned that... Um, you know, 196 countries with, you know, different airports, um, different frustrations. Did you have a particular favorite country or any other country that sort of stood out to you? I mean, I know it's, it's like sort of picking uh, between who your favorite child is, but yeah. did you have a favorite? Most, most countries I went to uh, would exceed my expectations or I talk about, you know, be, be the opposite of what my preconceptions were. Um, there's a few places that I really learned to love. I think Bali was Bali was a lovely place, which I learned to love not because of poverty or because of the profound effect it had on me, just because it was a really great vibe, really chilled, kind of laid back way. And I know you guys being Aussies, that's just down the road for you, and maybe like the equivalent of us going to Spain. But for me, it was it was it was a really great place, uh, and it was a, it was a lovely lovely place to be. But then on the other hand. Sierra Leone is a place I will be going back to. Guatemala, I'll be going back to. Nepal, the mountains and around that. We've got some plans to go back to, 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 to Tibet and go around there. Um, I'd love to go and spend some more time in Bhutan, one of the really hard kingdoms to come to get into. And um, Bhutan is so peaceful. Bhutan is just this utter, like tranquil, serene, mountainous wonderland of just, it just exudes calm and silence it's incredible so yeah i think something for, for everybody to if you want to escape the wonders of uh, cities then that's a beautiful place to go but honestly can't answer that question very well because i'd have to probably end up listing 196 places 
<laughs> no, yeah, Bhutan's an interesting one because Bhutan actually doesn't have a, a GDP. It has the uh, the gross happiness index, right? They don't have GDP. Yeah, it's one of the happiest nations, and it's, it's it's something that should be should be used more. It's the because people are really happy there because they have the great way of life and they're supported. And um, it's it, I almost think of it as the it's almost very similar to Scandinavia in the sense of how their infrastructure works. It just happens to be this tiny kingdom in this mountainous wind wonderland. And so that, that kind of increases its factor. But um, no, I would strongly suggest going to Bhutan, although the airport, the landing is rather bumpy because it's in the mountains. But yeah. And I'm not too sure if we've touched on it, but there would have been plenty of different moments when you did feel lonely, um, you know, doing this, doing this, you know, by yourself. I think you might have had one other person who did sort of give you a sense check here and there. I'm not too sure, maybe in, in a, some some other countries. But when when you did feel lonely and when you did feel sort of um, you know you're emotionally fatigued, physically fatigued, I'll leave that up to you because uh, yeah, <laughs> that that body can work like a horse. But you know, at least yeah. at least the emotional fatigue kicking in. But <laughs> was there was there moments where you you purposely seeked sort of connection with those that are around you um, in these some of these local countries that you did go to or were there other moments you know there's always that classic example of um, when there's nothing much left in the tank you have to dig really deep to sort of find your yeah. why those moments yeah. yeah how did that manifest for you yeah there was the feeling of loneliness is a really good point because I didn't I wasn't I suppose maybe a handful of times maybe one or two times significantly where I felt lonely where I felt on my own because I think there's a difference between being lonely and being isolated lonely is like oh just kind of maybe I could do with some company I think isolated is a little bit more scary but isolated is shit I've just flown to Canada and now I'm going to run around the world (laughs) and now I can't sleep because of the time difference I can't speak to anybody I know you know and it's like whoa and that hit that definitely hit me on day one but after that, I was so surrounded by people that were helping me. And whether I was in somebody, you know, I'd stay with lots of families and some of them, they wouldn't speak English. But I didn't feel lonely there because I had their connection or I had you know, their dog to play with or I had their, <laughs> their kids to go and like help feed in the morning. And it was this beautiful journey of, of connecting with people. So I think the more people you have around you, even if you don't have something in common, even if they're not listening to you properly, even if they... Uh, don't really feel like they're, 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 they're your kind of people. Um, having people to connect with in some way, maybe subconsciously, is so much more powerful than just being on your own. I think it's in the book. It may have been cut out. I don't know. And when I was running in uh, running in Oman on the beach uh, early in the morning, and there was a guy who I noticed that probably spoke English, and I was I was right. He did. He was an American. And uh, I'd kind of sidled up to him. He was running with a backpack. And I said, oh, hi. Pitch black in the middle of Amman Beach. And I was get, finishing my run, last 10K. And he said, oh, yeah, I'll run with you. We got chatting. Um, and afterwards, he said, oh, where are you going? And I said, well, my hotel's that way. And I'm getting a taxi. And he said, no, no, don't worry. I'll give you a lift back. And we went back to his house, stupid little clock in the morning. And he said, oh, well, I'll, I'll, get my, I'll, I'll wake my wife and my son up and we'll make you some dinner. This was like midnight and, and they made me dinner. They made me pasta. They got out of bed and they let me have a shower in their home after literally just meeting him on the beach. And it was the most surreal, surreal feeling. Um, and yet they just gave me their time. 
they just gave me their time because they wanted to connect. And it's that those kind of people that I try and surround myself with. And I think I put it in my, my book right at the beginning, you know, you are the sum of those around you. If you can surround yourself with people that are a, those kind of people like you've just said, appreciating that time is so powerful and, and, and a really giving commodity. Um, and also if you can surround yourself with people that are going to provide you the ability to level up, I think there's those, you know, if, you, if you're basing yourself around people that you're always trying to help everybody, you'll eventually sink down to their level and they'll come up a little bit. But if, but if you surround yourself with people that you can elevate you as well as you can support those that need a little bit of elevation as well, then there's a really brilliant, brilliant way of, of networking like that. Um, so I'm always conscious of that. You know, have I got people around me that are either negative or positive? And if they're negative, then why? Let's try and help them. Because there's something, there's something big in that. You know, you can't just go, well, I've climbed up the ladder now. Let's not forget those those many rungs of the ladder. Um, you know, that's the same in, in emotional intelligence as well. I love how these lessons that you brought up from this like grand expedition can almost be transferred to our daily life and just interacting. And an interesting yeah. thing that I think I don't know if I read it or heard it, but I think it would be very relevant to our audience is throughout your whole journey, uh, I believe you didn't drink at all, did you? You didn't consume any alcohol. Like, I find that fascinating. No, yeah, no, because, because, because um, no, no, I don't drink anything. It's um, the, the the drinking thing is I had two <laughs> two goals other than to run a marathon in every country. The, the the two other goals were don't cut my hair yep. and and don't drink. And the last time I last time I had I haven't drank beer since like, for about twelve years. Um, and I stopped drinking booze four four years ago now, something like that. Um, and uh, you know I, I try and be relatively flexible with it, um, but I I don't drink. I just don't drink. Maybe if it's like zero point five percent or something like that, like tiny like effectively no alcohol than I was doing but yeah drink does have an effect on your on a lot of stuff that is that what you were is that what you were getting at the amount of alcohol yeah it was just interesting that when I think of travel and people and in my social life and even in England when I was there for a while that you kind of associate connecting with people with alcohol and I'm hearing these amazing stories that you brought up and the connection and like you haven't needed to resort to alcohol. I think that's beautiful. No, so. and I think a lot of people yeah. do drink. And whether you are the most confident person or not, there's obviously it should just be called like the confidence like liquor, confidence like liquid or something. Because that's I believe why most people drink. They don't really drink because they want to feel that hangover in the morning, or they want to feel lightheaded, or they want to fall over when they go to bed. They are drinking to give them, you know, obviously to lose your inhibitions, but also to be more confident. And then I think as you get older, maybe you continue to drink because it's a social thing. Um, but also, the, you know, all of my friends now know that if we're having a drink, or if we're having a, a party or whatever, um, not that parties exist anymore, do they? But um, we'll, um, we'll, everybody will drink and I'll just have an orange juice or a non-alcoholic something and that's fine, it's normal. Right? <laughs> you don't need to drink. Um, and I, I think it helped with me that I didn't really, I wasn't a particularly big drinker in the first place. Um, and so I could cut it out. But I've got quite an addictive personality. So I think if if if, if stuff you know, got tough in my life, I don't want to have this this kind of uh, yeah this substance there that can be used to drown stuff when actually it's it's better to not bury your head in it. Um, so I think it's quite good to cut that out. And, and also I do the same with various foods all the time, like 
cutting out some fast foods and, and and then you know i had so many mcdonald's around running the world last year we we cut out mcdonald's completely um and and that sort of stuff and that wasn't because i was getting fat i do quite a lot of running um but it was just like a let's just try and be a little bit disciplined i quite like the idea of um of building discipline into your life on purpose um and that's something i'm building into a workshop package that i'm putting together for some schools where we go around and deliver like month one session per month in various schools and we talk about different topics that aren't being discussed in in schools much um and discipline um personal discipline set by yourself not pushed on you by others i think is a great a great little it's almost very buddhist i suppose very kind of being calm and being in control of yourself oh yeah i was going to say like we've obviously chatted for a while now and before we finished off i just wanted to touch on that final moment in athens um because like i remember re- reading it recently like that last moment when you were holding kevin's hand and crossing the finish line and like the range of emotions there like i know it's hard to describe in a few minutes but um yeah if you could go into the essence of it yeah gosh fin- yeah of crossing the finish line um those last few emotions lasted much longer than the the crossing the finish line moment i suppose there was the build up not only of the entire trip but just those last few countries and getting there and coming from israel where were they going to let me into athens because of my stamps in my passport and as soon as i got got to the in in the countryside of the airport and i touched ground and i thought right this is where my finish line begins and then we obviously worked up to the finish line and we ran with kev and we laughed and we sang and we cried quite a lot through that marathon in a in a great way and and in a sad way talking about him and he did a video with me of talking about his, his you know, not being able to live a normal life with prostate cancer and stuff and so um we spoke a lot about a lot about that and then i crossed the finish line and immediately my first my honest first reaction was well, that's another marathon done what's next because i was so in my rhythm of one country to another to another to another and then your brain starts to say you realize that's it like that's the finish line that's the there isn't any more countries to run you've literally ran out like that's it and then you start to feel elated and proud and then the kind of tears of joy and tears of relief huge amount of built up relief that, that came because of the the pressure that i was i, I was feeling mostly put on by myself um and then hugs with loved ones at the end and then the speeches which again nobody really saw because it was all just for the close people and nobody talked too much about it in the book either just the close people that were there the couple of hundred people that we had in that in the finishing kind of party in the hotel in the evening and i think that's when that that finish line then ended you know it was from when i touched ground in athens to when we we i finished those speeches um and we had a lot of moments with one another it was it was a beginning of the rest of my life that that finish line it was the beginning of of the rest of of what i could what i could do um and it was lovely and there's so many other bits which i wish i put more in the book but again lots of it was cut out because there was too much to say but um yeah, it was lovely to experience something with your parents and i and i hope that everybody in the in the world does more with their parents in a in a more collaborative kind of adult to adult way as opposed to parent child way because we all have parents mostly um and eventually maybe if we're lucky we will have children 
And I certainly would love to have that kind of situation I had with my dad and my mum with, with helping me with this project with my kids, because although they would tell you that it was the most stressful thing I've ever done in their life, it was so, it was so lovely to bond with them in that way. Um, and, and, and having that at the finish line was, was quite special as well. So the finish line was obviously a moment I will never forget, but I can't really articulate how, how special it was. And, and not just for a tiny moment, but for the, everything that it encapsulated. Wow. Yeah. You know, 196 countries and then, you know, all the setbacks and, and all the risks that you took and, you know, all of that culminating into this, into this, you know, ultimate crescendo and that last mile when you, when you ran with the, you know, the very person that you dedicated this entire project to, it's just, you know, it's pretty hard to, to put in words. Um, and yeah, and just from a, from a mental health perspective, you know, it's about, you know, sharing your emotions and, and you, you definitely come on today and, and you've shared, um, you know, the aspects of loneliness and, and all that stuff and, and all the setbacks, all the risks that you took. It's, it's, it's incredible that you've, you've come on and spoken about that. Um, I did have a question for you, um, especially, you know, just given and taking a look back at the journey that you've been through um, in this project. Um, do you have any sort of, you know, lessons or mental health lessons that you'd like to impart on, on to our audience? I've learned as I've got older. I mean, I've always suffered with, with mental health. And I think the obvious thing to say about it is that mental health is a continuum, is a sliding scale. You have illness on one end and you have wellness on the other end and mental health everybody experiences. If anybody looks at mental health and go, oh no, I don't suffer with mental health, that's just utter rubbish. Like everybody experiences days when they are sad. The difference between having an unhappy day and a, and, and a, and a mentally ill day is when you allow it to spiral and don't have the people around you to, to help, I think, in my opinion. And the moments where I've had the, the biggest struggles are where I feel most alone and I lose the fact of the reality where I'm not alone um, you know you just kind of forget that you've you've got a, a phone in your hand or you've got an email or you've got your, your your friends down the road or your parents downstairs or something you know um, and you've got people that care about you and people that not only care about you but will be will have felt exactly what you are feeling <laughs> that's the that's the most powerful thing is that you all of a sudden feel like you're this one person in the entire universe that's ever existed that's going through whatever you're feeling, whether it's joy or whether it's utter despair. Everybody has felt the same thing. And so it's, it's incredibly brilliant to realise that. And, and that's what the, the trip has taught me is when I did feel a bit lonely or when I did feel, feel you know, like I was going through struggles, there's an opportunity to, to open yourself up to, to, to more things like that. And I am very open with the fact that having, you know, struggled with with being incredibly like depressed sometimes for no reason um and that's that's okay <laughs> I'm, I'm actually I'm, I'm cool with it being depressed sometimes and um whether that's there's loads of things you know <laughs> things like cutting out alcohol helps things like we just t- just talked about it things like having enough sleep understanding your diet just little stuff that you can start to slowly tick away at and go, hang on a minute, how many boxes have I got ticked here? Oh, yeah, that's probably why I'm feeling like that. It's because I've not had much sleep or I've only been eating sugar. Or, you know, there's little bits that can just tick off and go, oh, okay, I can probably do a little bit to help myself. Um, but let's just give them, a, you know, give them a friend a call or something and have a chat because they might have felt the same at some point. Um, so, yeah, that, that whole loneliness and isolated feeling, as I think, is at the heart of a lot of mental illness. Um, uh, and the, you know, the, the, there was a moment I think everybody has that if, if, you, if you're suffering from mental health, you feel like um, 
a nobody will understand your feeling but also that why why me <laughs> why am i feeling like this and as soon as you start to realize that it's not just you it's everybody you just you're just feeling it at the moment um then then it starts to open things up a little bit more and i wish we could do more and hopefully between us we can do a little bit a few projects in the future and get you boys running as well yeah no definitely thanks nick um Obviously, you'll have to slow down a lot for us, but um, yeah, thank you so much again, Nick. Uh, we, we really do appreciate it. And, you know, the fact that you've, you've been able to come on here um, and obviously donate your time and um, talk about your own struggles and vulnerabilities throughout your journey and, and, and also imparting some lessons onto our, onto our audience, it's, uh, it's great. And we, we, we are definitely, uh, definitely very, very grateful. So thank you. Thank you so much, Nick. Appreciate that. No, no, no. I'm really, I'm really grateful. As I hope, I hope everybody starts to realise that opening up is, is the cool thing to do. Opening up and sharing who you really are is. Uh, otherwise, you just kind of die with your own feelings, and that's rubbish, isn't it? You want to, you want everybody to know where you've been feeling, so, so that so you can be shared. Um, there's another. I've just thought of another little. Um, I can't remember her name off the top of my head. There's a brilliant person who set up a, a, a kind of a non-profit based in the UK called Run Talk Run. I don't know if you've if you've interviewed them yet or not, but Run Talk Run is this community-led. It was started in a particular city in the country where people would get together that are feeling um, sad, down, alone, isolated, would need somebody to help to, to talk to, and then a leader would they would just all meet and go for a run, and they would chat about their problems, and they were starting to discover that they were talking about things with these groups of people that they hadn't shared with anybody else because running kind of opens those kind of emotions up a bit. Um, and so lots of uh, lots of these other run talk run groups started to pop up around the country led by them um and I, I'll, I'll i'll put you in touch with them because there's a really cool cool system that just really really helps there's you know there's no money or anything and it's literally just rock up on a particular day and go for a run and chat about your problems um and it's it's yeah i, I I'm, I'm i'm really proud that that's that exists in the country um yeah so i'll put you in touch with them that that'll be awesome. I know we're we're at time, Nick, but I think definitely from the bottom of our hearts, just wanted to say a massive thank you. Uh, I think it goes goes without saying that I think your story inspires a lot of resilience, courage, and I think more importantly, what's on the other end of action, which so often we get stuck in an idealistic way of thinking that you know what if, what if, what if. But I think your your evidence of the fact that <laughs> things do happen on the other end of that. Um, and I know I can speak on behalf of the other two here as well. When we first listened to your story on Ritual, it definitely shifted something in each and every one of us. Um, and so continue, continue to do what you're doing. I think it's definitely doing, um, you know, those conversations plant seeds in people. Um, and those seeds over time, you don't know when they'll sprout. Maybe it could be tomorrow, maybe it could be in a couple of years' time, but those seeds definitely sprout in people. So um, don't know if... Yeah. Yeah, no. Well, likewise with you guys, you guys are doing the same stuff. You know, this is, is like I said right at the beginning, this is a powerful, um, powerful platform that you're creating. And I, yeah, you should both, all of you should applaud yourselves for it and, and celebrate it more and appreciate it because you, yeah, you're doing good work. Hopefully we can spread the message a little bit more. Yeah, we'll go for a, go for a run together. I was going to say, I'll only come in if you, if you could go for a run with me. We'll yeah. do maybe a couple of marathons if you like. <laughs> Hang on a minute, this is going down. <laughs> uh, we'll, um, do a, we'll do a 100 mile run, it's all good. There you go. 
Maybe you're doing a hundred mile run. Yeah, you've you've, you've, you've you've committed now. Uh, anyways, I think that's everything at least from my end. So, Sunny signing off. Thanks so much, Nick. This is Meng signing off. This is Ujwal signing off. And me signing off, I guess. And there you have it. That was Nick Butter. Hopefully you guys found that as amazing and inspirational as we did. We sat down with Nick in February, so it was a really interesting experience to listen back at that and hear our convo. And yeah, honestly, just we were very grateful that we had that chance to chat with him. And yeah, like it was just it was just unbelievable, honestly. So we'll probably do another podcast where we sit down just with the three of us, myself, Manic and Sunny, and just reflect on on just how unbelievable it it is to really to 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 see what he's done um yeah hopefully you guys enjoyed uh, that was a bit longer but yeah there's so much to his story and yeah i think we had to really take that much time next week we've got uh, a, a guest that sunny sits down with uh, his name is jeffrey Ahern, and he is someone who has worked in the mental health space as a as a clinician as as a nurse and yeah they go deep into his life story it's a very serious and powerful compelling story i'd say and they chat about very uh, interesting topics one being the relationship with diet and mental health so yeah looking forward to that but yeah i've been chatting for enough hopefully you guys enjoyed this and yeah stay safe bye